Why pray when I could just go do something? You might be tempted to think as if praying wasn't actually doing something. There's actually a saying that's been going around Redemption Bible Church the last uh, couple years now. It's a simple phrase. It's prayer is not trite, which is true. So when we feel these ways about prayer, some of the best counsel is to go to Scripture, to the infallible Word of God. Fortunately for us, there are a great many prayers prayed in the pages of Scripture uh, by men and women of great faith, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so actually a couple months ago, I taught a Sunday school at Redemption, um, a Sunday school series about prayers prayed in the Bible. And so actually our, our text today was one that stood out to me prominently because it contains key elements that really should be in every prayer. Uh, adoration, confession, and then declaration of the works of God. And so I, I hope that we'll see these three things clearly this morning as we look at Nehemiah's prayer together. Uh, we're going to see him quote God's word back to God. He's going to meditate on the goodness of God. Uh, and the greatness of God uh, is foremost in his mind. Um, and so as we examine this prayer today, I, I hope that we can get some encouragement and maybe even direction for our own prayer practices um, in our, our discipline of, of the ordinary means of grace that is prayer, um, that when we bring our concerns before his throne, he does hear us. So let's, let's read the text. I'm actually going to read all of chapter 1 with, with the initial verses giving us some context. So let's read this together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Yahweh, our God, we bow before you today in adoration of, 
of not only who you are, but what you have done for us. I pray that now as we consider this text together, that you would, you would open our eyes, uh, that, you would, that you would soften our hearts, um, that we would hear great things out of your word. And I pray that we would uh, see Christ alone, uh, that I might increase and that he would, uh, that I would decrease and he would increase. So I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nehemiah's prayer here doesn't emerge from a vacuum. There's actually some intense context behind these words uh, that Nehemiah prays here. The nation is in exile because of their sins. They'd been carried off to Babylon by force and then actually began to gradually be allowed to go home uh, bit by bit, uh, a few people at a time, gradually uh, in the reign of Cyrus, who actually defeated Babylon and then took control of that empire. Now, that doesn't mean that things were easy for the people by any means. Uh, They actually had a a very difficult time. They went home in very small numbers, and they faced incredible pressures when they got home. So actually, the the book of Ezra tells a great deal about those events that happened and the pushback that they received, uh, physical attacks, uh, slander, uh, letters being written back to the empire, telling lies uh, about the people, terrible things, much, much more than just these. So now this bad report has come back to Nehemiah uh, that Jerusalem's walls have been destroyed, right? The gates are on fire. Uh, Jerusalem is not in good shape. So in, in verse 4, the beginning of our, of our text today, Nehemiah doesn't wait around for an opportune time to pray about this, this issue. He doesn't just stand there and come up with a battle plan with his friend Hanani He stops right there when he hears the news. He stops, and he wept, and he prayed in mourning. I think too often when we're blindsided by grief or disappointment or some other circumstance, whatever it might be, we tend to focus on anything other than prayer. Now, that might be because we we might overestimate our own ability, uh, our own strength, uh, our own preparedness to face these kinds of challenges, So we think that we're jumping into action when really we're actually about to burn out what's left in our fuel tank. So I have a a sneaking suspicion here that that Nehemiah truly knew how weak he was and that he wouldn't be able to face this news, this desperate news about his homeland, without holding the hand of his creator in prayer. And so he fasted and he mourned for Yahweh's city for days— and he prayed to the one true God. And despite all the troubles that flooded his mind, Nehemiah doesn't actually start his prayer with some list of requests, uh, a list of complaints or demands toward God. He doesn't go before the throne of grace and, and just immediately let loose all his troubles. He actually begins his prayer with adoration. His prayer begins with communicating his awe for Yahweh, for his glorious attributes and titles. So these opening words of this prayer are actually reminding Nehemiah who he's praying to. He's not speaking to some vain idol of wood or stone, not some demon that the nation sacrificed to, not some human ruler like Caesar or the Pharaoh who pretended to be divine, and then would lord power over people. No, he was bringing his prayer before the Holy One, right? The one 
true and living God, the God of heaven, the God of prayer, at the same God that we worship today, the same God that we pray to and have prayed to already this morning, uh, who we sing hymns of praise to, the same God who saved us and called us as his own. Right? This is the God of heaven. This title is, is especially interesting because it praises the supremacy of Yahweh, his absolute authority over all things. Many of the nations that surrounded the people of Israel served and worshipped what we might call regional or, or elemental gods. For instance, there were many gods called Baal, which just meant Lord in, in that language. Um, one Baal was a storm god. The other Baal, another Baal was one who maybe ruled a particular nation, for example, and only had uh, reign over a certain territory of land. Uh, Asherah was a goddess of fertility. Uh, we know the, the, the god Moloch as well. We don't know him for a specific talent, but we know uh, that his worship was especially dark because it required the sacrifice of children. So Yahweh, as God of heaven, is actually literally above these terrestrial gods. He's no Thor, god of thunder, or some god of crops, or anything like that. No, he's the god of heaven, high, lifted up, the supreme creator of all that is. And so because he's the god of heaven, that also means he's the god over earth as well. The god of the seen and known world and God over parts of the world that we don't see and know. Right? There's no other God for the depths of the ocean uh, or for the inky void of space. No, Yahweh is God over all of it. He's the great and awesome God. This is another title that Nehemiah uses in his prayer here. The great and awesome God. Is there anybody else that we could use this type of language for? And it's used often throughout the Scriptures. So Psalm 66, verses 1 through 3 says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Or Psalm 150 Verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Or consider this as well from Daniel's own prayer in Daniel chapter 9. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Doesn't that sound familiar? So this great and awesome phrase is, is used in other places of the Bible. Um, it's not just something that Nehemiah came up with. But what it is, it's an attempt to describe the indescribable. That, that Yahweh, the God of heaven, is infinitely powerful and worthy of all praise that can be ascribed to him. And that his deeds are unmatched in terms of power and perfection. Right? This is the kind of God that we should want to bring our prayers before. 
He has all power. Right? Nothing is, is too difficult for God. Even our most excruciating circumstances are actually simple to Him. The unchanging, great, and awesome God can do all things. And He would be worthy of all this adoration if He had done nothing for humanity at all, just simply as our Creator. He would deserve all worship just for that. And yet, Yahweh has not left His people alone. Which leads us to the next phrase, the, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So Nehemiah praises Yahweh for this specific deed, this specific aspect of his perfection. And these might sound to our ear like two different things, but they're actually very much the same thing. Because God has cared for his people through covenant for all time. He made a covenant of works with Adam, for example, giving him the instruction to be fruitful and multiply, subduing and filling the earth. He promised never to destroy the earth again by water in his covenant with Noah, and that sign of that covenant is the rainbow. He promised land, seed, and blessing to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. He gave laws for the preservation of of Abraham's descendants, and he gave those laws in his covenant with Moses, which we might call the Mosaic Covenant. And then the greatest covenant, the new covenant, uh, promised in Jeremiah initially, inaugurated by Jesus himself by his righteous life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So these are all covenants rooted precisely in the steadfast love of God. So this term, steadfast love, that the ESV uses is actually a stand-in phrase for one particular Hebrew word, uh, and I'm sure you've heard it before, hesed. And that particular word has no precise definition in English because it encompasses so many things. It's difficult for our language uh, to truly say what hesed is. It's a rich, a rich term that describes God's faithful love and attention toward his sinful people. It's like taking the love of a father for his child, but then making it infinite and eternal. There's just no way for us to really describe that concisely. So the best we get is steadfast love in ESV, or loving kindness if you read uh, the New American Standard. So in his prayer here, Nehemiah is, is reminding himself of these things while he's praying. Right? He's, he's not actually telling God something that God doesn't know. God knows all things. But this adoration here, as stoked by repeating these things in his prayer, this adoration is an anchor in the storm for Nehemiah. He and his people have faced so much during this exile and the unchanging nature of God, the awesome, great God of heaven, this unchanging nature is what anchors this people in hope. That he shows steadfast love to his people. That he never breaks his covenants, even when his people break the covenant. So this is an urgent prayer. Our prayers as well are urgent to us. We're always eager to tell God what's troubling us, 
But beginning our prayers with adoration like this reminds us that Yahweh is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over this entire world. He's sovereign over the actions of sinful people. And that we should have no fear, right? Because this great and awesome God is seated on his throne and no one can supplant him. Curiously, in verse 6, we see Nehemiah beseeching the attention of God, which is, I think, rather interesting. I would actually say that, that he comes with confidence before the throne of grace, that he might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which is a quote from Hebrews 4.16. Praying well is, is going confidently before the throne of grace, and praying poorly would be going proudly before the throne of grace. We should notice that there is a difference between confidence and pride. So Nehemiah here is careful not to presume on the grace of his God. This covenant-keeping God is patient and kind with his people. And yet, Nehemiah himself here asks for Yahweh's attention with very careful words. He treads lightly before the throne of God. He beseeches Yahweh's gracious attention to his deep concerns. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, Nehemiah prays. One of the amazing things about God is that he doesn't actually have ears and eyes like us. His eyes don't droop with fatigue like ours do or get dry and need to be closed for a while. Uh, his ears never get uh, stopped up with wax or, or get tinnitus or, or any of the other uh, ailments that plague our bodies. Most importantly, though, Yahweh never ignores his children, which is what we're talking about here. Nehemiah is humbly asking his Lord to hear his prayer because he knows full well that he does not deserve Yahweh's attention on his own merits. He doesn't deserve to have the ear of God with how sinful he has been. This is much like what a subject uh, would do before an earthly king, except that this king is the king of all creation, uh, the, the great and awesome God. But he's also Nehemiah's adoptive father by faith. So he has access to audience with the king here, but he still comes with humility and reverence. Now, the reason, the reason that Nehemiah could not presume on God's attention is really the core reason for this whole prayer, which is that he has sin. He has sins to confess before Almighty God. And he knew full well that his kindred were in exile. They were in this very situation because of sin. And their covenant-keeping God had kept his word to scatter them when they turned their backs on him, to drive them to the brink so that they would feel the weight of their sin and return to him. And so in this prayer here, in this next section of confession, Nehemiah confesses sins in actually several areas. So first, he speaks of the nation's sin. He acknowledges the sin of the entire nation of Israel. 
At a glance, we might think that he's doing this common thing where we repent of other people's sins, but not our own, leaving our own sins to the side. But he doesn't actually do that at all. He goes right on to then include the sins of his own family, even himself, in this confession. So actually, in a very real way, by confessing the sins of the entire nation, who were living collectively under the Mosaic Covenant, his sin and his parents' sins were identical to the sins of the entire nation. So this is actually the heart of faith speaking here. Because I could imagine a man in this condition uh, could be a little bit prideful and maybe think he was less of a sinner than others. You know, consider Nehemiah's own position here. He serves in the king's household, the emperor's household, as a cupbearer, which is what he mentions as his job in verse 11. This is actually an elevated position. That's a position that comes with some influence, actually. The cupbearer would test the wine and the meal of the king or the emperor, the man in power, and ensure that he wasn't about to be poisoned, so that if the cupbearer lived, then the king would live. So this usually and rightfully earned cupbearers quite a bit of, of trust within the courts. Plus, in addition to that, cupbearers had access to the ruler uh, when he wasn't at court, he, when he was in his private chambers. He would eat alone. Uh, he would eat, obviously, not in the public court, and the, and the cupbearer would be there. So, I say this to say, if Nehemiah were a different kind of man, he might actually think he was better than the other Israelites because he had been blessed with this position. Right? He might actually be tempted to think, well, I'm not as sinful as the other folks are, uh, because if, if I were as sinful as them, I would be out there doing the slave labor that they're doing. But no, Nehemiah puts himself and his own family in the same muck and mire of sin as the rest of the exiled nation. And that's why he says, we have sinned against you in his confession. Even I and my father's house have sinned. There's a lot wrong in our world. And we can plainly see a lot of the culprits that have caused so much of the trouble that, that our nation, uh, that our world lives under. But we don't have the right to think that we're better than they are because we have been blessed richly by God. We too were once dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. So we, we should certainly be concerned with the issues that, that face our, our county, uh, our country, our world. We should vote and reason with people on these important issues. But we should also pray, and we should pray hard. We're facing a lot of these challenges in an electoral way this very year. Uh, this is a good year for fervent prayer, as if every year we're not. But there's a lot at stake in our world. But for the grace of God, we could have been the ones wreaking destruction. 
but rather we've been called to be ministers of reconciliation. We too have sinned grievously against God and against our neighbor, as we have already confessed this morning in our worship service, but God saved us. Nehemiah is very specific about how he and his nation have sinned. He spells it out in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. This is one way of saying, we have broken your holy laws. Because Yahweh had given many laws to the people under the Mosaic Covenant. The most famous of these would obviously be the Ten Commandments, which stand forever as moral law, but there were a great many other rules and, and statutes that God called on the Israelites specifically to uphold. These are laws that are contained in the end of Exodus, uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which are the books that usually cause many people to abandon their Bible-in-a-year reading plan that they started in January. But these are very important things. God commanded various dietary laws, laws about mixed fabrics. There were rules about the Sabbath. There were rules for various feast days that needed to be celebrated. There were rules about sacrifices and priesthood. And the people, they broke so many of those. But there was one specific law that they broke with reckless abandon. And it was the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you break one law, you're a lawbreaker of all the laws. And they broke the most important. The people abandoned the proper worship of Yahweh on so many occasions And they chose to give the glory that belongs to God alone to lesser things, to men, uh, to idols, and as I said before, even to demons. To do this was to break the very covenant that God had made with them. And it was actually tantamount to a cosmic divorce. In fact, actually marriage had a lot to do with it as well, because the pattern for ancient Israel was to disobey God's commandment not to marry into the surrounding peoples. Because intermarriage with pagans meant accepting their gods next to Yahweh, which actually means to replace Yahweh with another god, because you shall have no other gods before me, he he declares. And they actually did this gleefully in their rebellion. It wasn't like they were uh, taken to be fools. They did this happily. God was clear what the discipline would be for violating his law. He told the people this in Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants." But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, and the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out 
when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So Nehemiah recognized that the current exile was just punishment for what the people had done. Nehemiah fully understands that this this current suffering is exactly what Yahweh said he would do when the people did what they did. And that's why now, as Nehemiah goes to declare the deeds of Yahweh in his prayer, he quotes the Lord's word to Moses specifically back to Yahweh. These are words from the Lord's institution of the Mosaic Covenant. So in this prayer, he quotes Leviticus 26.33, which is a promise I'm sure that he was reminded of over and over and over again as the people languished in Babylon. The Israelites certainly were scattered among the peoples, as he says. Babylon was an enormous empire that, that only got larger as it was overtaken by the Syrians. They were, the people of Israel were among many, many different peoples within that greater metropolis. You might even say that they were scattered among the uttermost parts of heaven, in a way. But there is a promise for this scattered people. And God never makes a false promise. God always keeps His promises to His people. And He promised that He would gather them. And that's quoted in verse 9. He would gather them and then bring them to the place that He had chosen to make His name dwell there. One of the things I love about prophecy in Scripture uh, is that there's often an immediate fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. And and this promise is actually one that very much fits that, that definition. So the immediate fulfillment of this promise, the one that Nehemiah hoped for, was that Yahweh would gather all of Israel back from exile to bring them to the holy city of Jerusalem, that He would reinstate worship under the Mosaic law in the temple, the place where he had promised that his name would dwell and that he would live within his people. But here, this morning, we who have believed in Christ know that there is a deeper and enduring promise, an ultimate fulfillment of those very words, and that it's much bigger than just returning to one plot of land in the Middle East in attending worship in one specific building there. Now, we know that God has His people in every tribe, in every nation, every tongue, all throughout history, scattered among the states, the kingdoms of this world, across the entire globe that He's created. We know that He has made His dwelling literally in His people, through the indwelling Holy Spirit who ministers to us moment by moment. We have no need for a centralized temple because the church of God is His temple. 
Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the promised restoration of of this people for which Nehemiah has been praying night and day is only the beginning of the restoration that Yahweh has planned. The great God and Savior had purposed for His people. So in verse 10... Nehemiah again quotes Scripture in his prayer, and he uses language that should make our ears perk up a little bit, because he acknowledges that Yahweh has redeemed his people, and he certainly has. Yahweh had chosen this people through Abraham, granted to them the peculiar sign of circumcision, which is not analogous with baptism, by the way. God had graciously preserved the Israelites through this exile and would preserve them through more exiles to come. He preserved them as a people for his own possession because they, to, to them would be born a Messiah of a peculiar lineage. He preserved the people of Israel, the Israelites, so that the Messiah would come. And when he did come, he purchased redemption through his blood. Hebrews 9:12 uses sacrificial language to drive that very point home. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There's a direct link there because the redemption of the Israelites came through the types and shadows of the sacrificial system shedding the blood of an innocent animal to cover the heinous sins of sinful people. But this is fulfilled in shedding the blood of the sinless God-man. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. For the sins we are guilty of, we needed blood shed on our behalf if we hoped to see the last day. Well, Jesus did that for us. In his righteous life, in his undeserved death, in his great and awesome resurrection, ascension, and session, being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He redeemed us from the curse of the law given to Moses by becoming a curse for us on the cross. He redeemed those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. For us, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all of the lawlessness that we had plunged ourselves into, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so now we who have been redeemed no longer need to be told, do this and live. Instead, unlike the Mosaic law, we are now told, 
Live and do this. As Jesus says in John 14, 5, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John writes this in his first letter, almost like he was recalling Jesus' very teaching at that moment. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John 5, 1 through 3. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And so because of the work of Jesus Christ, his people no longer carry the load of that ceremonial and civil law. No, instead we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ in sanctification. There are no more exiles for God's people. Instead, the meek will inherit the earth, and the only scattering that Yahweh has purposed for His church is to go out into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey Christ. That's the Great Commission. These realities are, are so much better than what Nehemiah was praying for. He could never have had this in mind, But God purposed to deliver His people in the course of redemptive history. So starting with a return from the exile to freeing His people from the slavery of sin. He's been redeeming His people ever since He called them. And that very thing is the basis from which we pray. Knowing all of this glorious truth, we pray to the God who has redeemed us. And that's the only way that we can pray. And so following Nehemiah's pattern here in prayer, we adore Yahweh in our prayers for His great and awesome nature and for His mighty works toward us in love. We do beseech His attention with all humility, never presuming on the grace that He's given us. And then we confess our sins, knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we declare His awesome deeds to remind ourselves how much He has blessed us and to bless His name even as we ask Him for further blessings. So actually, so because we have the full benefit of the counsel of God, I actually want to turn briefly um, a few chapters deeper into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you would, turn to chapter 9. Um, I, in this passage, we're going to see that actually... Some of the specific things that Nehemiah prayed for in chapter 1 are coming to pass, even within his lifetime. So, uh, please turn to chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. The story has progressed now. Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. Uh, He's working hard to rebuild the city uh, and care for the people, uh, more and more of whom are returning home. So, he's gone from cupbearer, actually to, to governor of the region by God's grace. And so now, the elders of the people have gathered, along with all of the people, uh, and they pray a very long prayer, a chapter-long prayer, um, detailing all of God's work among them, uh, from Abraham to Egypt to the wanderings of their former exile. I want to zero in on, on some specific verses, verses 32 through 37. 32 through 37. So these are the elders of the people praying in this great congregation. Now, therefore, our God, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So much like Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, the people here give adoration to the great, mighty, and awesome God in all humility. They praise Him for His righteousness, even acknowledging that that righteousness is why He justly exiled them. They confess their sins, as well as their former ruler's sins. They left no stone unturned before Almighty God, even openly stating there at the very end in verse 37, still stating they were in great distress and in need of help. This, this is the very thing that Nehemiah prayed for. He recalled the promises that would come when the people returned to God. And they did that here as an entire nation gathered together. They even put it in writing and, and signed their own names to a document. Not that it would help them from, <laughs> from disobeying God in the future. But the promise did come to the people. This momentary restoration came and they would rebuild. They would resettle Jerusalem uh, and the rest of the promised land once again. So we might not see our prayers answered in this exact way and in this sort of timing, but the God who heard and answered Nehemiah's prayer here is the same God who hears and answers our prayers today. Back in Nehemiah 1, he asks for the help of, of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, to help as he goes to speak to the king. Nehemiah took his life in his hands doing so. And as we've already seen, Nehemiah believes in, trusts in, and loves his God. Nehemiah prayed fervently to the Lord. He ascribed praise to him. He repented of his sins. And now, only on that basis, after praying that prayer in verse 1, he goes into action. May we do the same thing when we face difficult times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people, we thank you that, that we are in the new covenant that you promised. Uh, we thank you for the benefits that we receive uh, to be reconciled to you, uh, that you are our Father, uh, that we are no longer cosmic traitors against the eternal King. We thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself uh, and you've, 
You've saved us by the gospel and then charged us to proclaim that gospel to a sin-dead world. We pray that today as we've considered this text, as we continue our worship, uh, that you would, you would continue to feed us, um, that, you would, that you would charge us that, that by the love with which you've loved us, that we would go and proclaim that same love into the world, that we would never presume upon your grace. Um, we pray that we would bring our sins before you in all humility, knowing that you are the justifier of the ungodly and you are just in doing so. We pray that we would always have an eye on our sin, uh, that we would never think that we have made it, uh, that we've attained perfection on our own. We pray that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ uh, as you continue to love us uh, into eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.